Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, contributing editor Dr. Thomas Ortel discusses the How I Treat series, consultative hematology for inpatients with authors Dr. Barbara Kunkel, Dr. Beverly Hunt, and Dr. Jeff Carson. Hi, uh, my name is Tom Ortel. I am the Chief of Hematology at Duke University. The goals for this particular uh, review series are focused on important concepts related to bleeding, clotting, the use of platelets, the use of red blood cells, the use of also iron, and how you approach patients with white blood cell problems all in the inpatient setting. So all in a different patient population than what we are normally seeing in the clinic. So I wanted to focus it completely on that consultative role, which all of us actually do participate in, either with our background and experience as a hematologist or with our background as a transfusion specialist. The articles selected for this review series were picked on the basis of wanting to cover the breadth of the types of problems that we see in consultative questions from hospitalists, from other consultants, etc. cetera. Uh, this reflected then the need to have chapters or articles that covered the breadth of hematology. Again, from bleeding disorders, through clotting disorders, through platelet problems, red cell problems, and white cell problems. So we wanted to cover that breadth as if you were a consultant on a hematology at a hospital, and you were asked to see a patient with this type of problem. These are all problems that would come to all of us as a consultant. There are four articles in the review series, and then a fifth article that we refer readers to complete the series. The articles include an approach to bleeding in the hospitalized patient that'll be discussed by Dr. Conkle, an approach to the prevention and treatment of thrombotic disorders in the hospitalized patient that's going to be attended by Dr. Hunt, an approach to the treatment of anemia with red cell transfusions, as well as iron, uh, which will be presented by Dr. Carson. Another article in this review series is one on how to approach inpatient consultations for quantitative neutrophil abnormalities in patients. And then a fifth article that we reference uh, that came out last year is one that how to use platelet transfusions. So we cover that breadth of what types of questions people will get asked from a consultant. The articles work together from the standpoint of any hematologist who serves as a consultant at a busy hospital or a medical center is going to be asked questions related to all of these topics at one point or another. These topics also overlap from the perspective of a bleeding patient with the treatment given may develop a thrombotic complication or become anemic or need platelets. And frequently, the consulting hematologist needs to be aware of and well-versed in all of these topics in order to handle the types of questions that we get. So they all do interface and essentially provide slightly different perspectives of the overall consultant's role. 
the overall series hopefully is going to meet the needs of our consulting members. Our people who are on busy consulting services should be able to find topics that are relevant to them on a day-to-day basis. I'm Barbara Conkle. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Washington and the Washington Center for Bleeding Disorders. Bleeding is a common symptom of hospitalized patients, and it can be due to a number of um, things, most commonly structural abnormalities due to surgery or procedures or medications, particularly anticoagulants or uh, antiplatelets. And the hematologist is often called to sort out why a patient is bleeding. So the hematologist's role is really critical for a number of reasons. One is to evaluate the patient in terms of current reasons for bleeding, obtain a good history of prior bleeding, which is often unfortunately not done by the other services, and then to understand the laboratory evaluation for both common and unusual bleeding disorders in order to um, make a diagnosis in the patient. I think the value of the article is to have a standardized approach to evaluating the bleeding patient, to understand common reasons, and the one we address is liver disease, a really important concept for liver disease is that in liver failure, both anticoagulant and procoagulant factors are decreased. And the prothrombin time, which is looked at as a measure of bleeding risk, is not valid in patients with liver disease. Uh, we know as it progresses, they can have normal thrombin generation. And so the history and that knowledge is really important in terms of guiding other specialties in terms of what they should do to treat or not treat someone with liver disease. The other points in the article are to understand less common reasons for bleeding, to bring that knowledge into the situation. And we address two disorders. One is acquired hemophilia, which is a rare disease, but presents in the community, usually in elderly individuals who have no history of bleeding. And it's very important to recognize and diagnose because the risk of death from bleeding is high. The treatment is also challenging because these individuals also have a high risk of complications from treatment because of their age and underlying conditions. So it's important to understand this condition and be a resource for the community. The other condition we address is a postpartum hemorrhage, which is common uncommonly due to bleeding disorders, but it's important to understand when it is due to a bleeding disorder and what needs to be treated. And because von Willebrand factor and factor VIII and fibrinogen increase during pregnancy, a diagnosis of an underlying bleeding disorder may not be made during pregnancy. And so being aware of the really timeline of those factors and how when they drop postpartum, what can be the cause of bleeding uh, and what should be considered is another area we discussed. I wish there was a better test for hemostasis and liver disease, uh, but we don't have that yet. That would be useful. The thromboelastography 
can be useful in guiding transfusion in patients with liver failure, but we don't have uh, a way to really diagnose, to really understand the hemostatic balance uh, in someone um, who presents with bleeding and liver disease. Um, one new development uh, in acquired hemophilia may be use of the factor VIII mimetic emicizumab. Um, there's an ongoing clinical trial in the US and one that just completed in Europe. And this may allow individuals really to have more time um, for hemostasis control, to have acquired hemophilia is due to an inhibitor to factor VIII and we have to treat bleeding and we have to give medicine, usually immunosuppressive therapy to get rid of the inhibitor. And that is associated with significant complications. So this is a drug that may modify the course in these patients and improve outcomes. I'm Beverly Hunt. I'm professor of thrombosis and hemostasis at King's Healthcare Partners in London, UK. I've written an article with Imo Akpan, who's based in New York, looking at the prevention and treatment of thrombotic complications in hospitalized patients. This is a really important and sometimes neglected area. Uh, we, in particular, concentrate first on hospital-associated venous thromboembolism. It's a long-forgotten fact that most VTE are actually due to hospital admission. It's the perfect recipe for developing VTE. If you look at Verkov's triad, we immobilize patients. They're sick, so they have thrombophilic blood. Um, and quite often, if they have an inflammatory disorder or they have surgery, they get disruption of their endothelium. So those are the three things that increase the risk. We cover that in some depth. I think it's quite interesting how variable practices across the world. Here I am in London. I have to police and develop all the guidance for all surgery and medicine as far as VTE prevention is concerned. And Imo in New York is consulted, but she doesn't actually run the hospital policy. We also talk about management of VTE and what to do if the patient is bleeding or not fit for anticoagulation and talk about inferior vena cava filters. Uh, and then we concentrate on a few difficult patient areas. So if we have a patient with severe thrombophilia coming into hospital, they need particular attention to make sure they don't have a further thrombotic event. And we talk briefly about the technology we now use, for example, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, uh, and talk about how it can precipitate thrombosis and how we would manage that. I never tire of talking about a hospital-associated venous thromboembolism. I just want to remind everybody that there are over 10 million cases a year globally. It's an area globally that we have got to take on in a bigger way. And I'm very glad that the World Health Organization are now starting to look at it. Uh, the dream is that if you're admitted to a hospital anywhere in the world, you will get VT risk assessed and re receive appropriate thromboprophylaxis. Managing thrombotic problems in hospital can often be quite complex. And I'm 
thinking about uh, somebody who might come in on anticoagulation and they need to stop their anticoagulation as an emergency because they might need surgery or they develop bleeding. And we have a range of drugs and PCC that we can use in those patients. And we discuss that particularly in our article. I think the most exciting thing on the horizon is that we've got new anticoagulants coming through. We have been using low molecular weight heparins and warfarin and now the DOEX for quite some time. And we're on the cusp of new anticoagulants coming through, which have good efficacy and probably a lower bleeding risk. And they will change how we manage thrombotic problems, I imagine, over the next five to 10 years. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Carson. I'm Distinguished Professor of Medicine at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Red cell transfusions are one of the most common treatments used in all hospitals around the world. Patients come in bleeding, anemic, and often are considered to give red cells. Our review focuses on common problem that occurs in our hospitalized patients, but goes to dilemmas where we're faced with uncertainty about how to weigh the pros and cons of giving blood in several clinical situations. The data is pretty clear that you can use less blood, so-called restrictive transfusion in most patients. That's where the clinical trial evidence lies at this moment. But there are situations in some patients where you really have a push and pull, where there are patients in whom probably have risks related to anemia that may lead to using more blood than in other settings. So we emphasize those clinical settings. That is a GI bleeder with underlying heart disease, coronary artery disease. A second case that we emphasize is a patient with congestive heart failure and how you manage both uh, blood and volume as well as the consideration of giving intravenous iron in that setting. The article really concentrates on these borderline clinical decisions and tries to provide a rationale for clinical judgment that the hematologist and other physicians who are caring for these patients might bring to the table for these cases. These patients are commonly cared for by a hospitalist service, at least in the model of in the United States. They're inpatients. The consultants would come by and assist with specific questions. These are actually more general medicine questions commonly because there's things moving really quickly in a lot of these cases and the clinicians have to make quick judgments on, on these bleeding patients, these patients in heart failure, these patients with underlying heart disease. So it's a team approach, and many clinicians in the hospital will look towards their hematology consultants to help provide the nuances of how to best care for these patients. And I think they provide a very valuable service in helping making uh, wise clinical decisions for our patients. I think some of the key points that I'd want to emphasize in the paper. First is while the clinical trials have generally established that a restrictive transfusion approach between seven and eight grams per deciliter is a safe and a reasonable approach to many patients, we urge doctors not to focus only on a number. Often you get calls from your nurses, from your residents, from your referring physicians that a patient has a specific hemoglobin, and we base frequently on giving blood on a single number. We urge clinicians rather to look at the total picture. 
That is, how is the patient feeling? What symptoms do they have? What are their vital signs look like? What's their underlying medical conditions? And you need to adjust when you choose to give blood in these situations based on the totality of the picture and not just a number. And this is a trap that many clinicians fall into. And while the clinical trial data says that a restrictive transfusion approach is safe and effective in most patients, individual patients have different needs and they will respond differently to anemia and they will respond differently to giving red cells. So that's a point that I think is really important to emphasize. The second point would make, would relate it to intravenous iron. It's become a very effective tool in managing anemia in both the inpatient as well as the outpatient setting. The case we present is a patient with heart failure. And the heart failure cases are often very difficult. These patients with more advanced heart failure do not have good prognoses. And the literature has now established that a large percentage of these patients have demonstrated iron deficiency and that they get better, they have better function with receiving IV iron. Now, a lot of these patients are not particularly anemic. They may have very mild anemia, but you can demonstrate evidence for iron deficiency and benefit with giving intravenous iron. That's the key take-home point I would make. And the last one related to red cell transfusion in patients with heart failure is that these are cases in which you need to be very careful in how you administer your red cells. You need to give it slowly. You need to often give diuretics before or after the use of red cells, but you can give blood as long as you're doing it cautiously and keeping a close eye on their volume status and their symptoms. A huge dilemma in the transfusion world is how do you manage patients with underlying heart disease? We really don't have clear evidence at this point whether or not those patients should be managed with a restrictive transfusion approach or whether they might benefit with a more liberal transfusion strategy. We are completing a trial that we call the MINT trial, myocardial ischemia and transfusion that's been funded by the National Heart and Lung Blood Institute. That trial has met its accrual goals of 3,500 patients, and we expect to publish those results sometime late in the fall. I look forward to seeing the results because the database is going to be locked shortly, and then we hope to present these results to the scientific community and publish it in a peer-reviewed journal in the fall. Let me start with Dr. Conkle. Pretend I'm your fellow, and I'm coming to you with a consult for the day, and it's a post-operative patient who had abdominal surgery and has developed unexpected bleeding post-operatively, both at the operative site but also in some other locations. You just tell me what begins going through your mind as you're thinking about this and what you want to know to try to figure out what's going on. An important point you made was that there was bleeding at the operative site and other places. Often we are called to see patients for bleeding at the operative site. And most of the time that is due to some surgical issue. We use a phrase uh, that it needs a stitch. For someone who has more diffuse bleeding symptoms, then we would want to know, one, the bleeding history, if it can be obtained. Sometimes that is challenging in acutely ill 
patient who can't respond themselves and also baseline laboratory values. So repeating PTT, platelet count. In a acutely ill patient, we always think of DIC and we would want to rule that out. And we would want to start with that approach and a review of the peripheral blood smear. We'd also want to know any medications the person's on, and particularly anything that has started newly in the hospital. Thank you, Dr. Conkleman. Also appreciate that you didn't ask me for a TEG result. <laughs> that TEG is not very helpful in diagnosis. It may be helpful in management but it is not helpful in diagnosis. Very good. Dr. Hunt, in what kind of clinical scenarios with acute thrombosis, venous thrombosis, would you reach beyond a blood thinner and start thinking about asking an interventionalist whether or not they could do something to lice clot, either a PE or a DVT? What makes you decide that you want to bring another expert in? I'm part of a PELT team, so that's a pulmonary embolism lysis team. And if we have a patient who scores as an intermediate risk uh, pulmonary embolism or they're in our area, they will be referred to us for consideration of whether to continue with conservative management or to go ahead either with catheter-directed thrombolysis or we would use systemic lysis. Uh, clearly, those who've got a massive PE or high-risk PE, we would automatically give systemic thrombolysis to. In the UK, we are advised by our regulatory body, nice not to use thrombolysis in deep vein thrombosis, but we would talk to our vascular, surgical, and intervention radiologists about a lytic intervention or even mechanical removal of clot if the patient had persistent problems and we were not progressing with anticoagulation. So in the U.S., they're referred to as PERT teams, the pulmonary embolism response teams, but I think many of our hospitals have similar teams that will get a stat page or stat call to review a case to decide if they should bring in a consultant for lysis, especially for PE, not for DVT. And you have a wonderful group, the PERT Consortium, which I belong to. It's a national, international group, and we talk about lysis and intervention at regular meetings. Excellent. Dr. Carson, I'm just curious, are there any new things coming down the horizon for those patients who are severely anemic, but who decline blood product support. That seems to be something I see, unfortunately, it seems fairly regularly that somebody doesn't want red cells, but that would be the first thing I'd reach for if I could. I have a, a lot of experience in caring for, for patients who decline blood. It's most commonly for religious reasons, but as you your question implies, it's become a more widespread perspective, even in those who don't have uh, religious reasons to not receive a unit of blood or uh, blood transfusions. You know, the key fundamentals of caring for these patients has to do with really good care and intervening before they get into big trouble. 
what I mean by that is these patients commonly come in, you know, they're sort of, they're, I mean, the ones that come in super low, they're low, and then you're, you're, you're in trouble. Um, but there's a lot of these patients that are coming in with a modest bleed. Their counts are dropping kind of in a slowly but steady way. And everyone is nervous about doing any aggressive interventions to stop the bleeding because they're higher risk patients. What the data says, Tom, is that if you can keep, if, when their hemoglobins get much below five to six grams per deciliter, they are at much greater risk of dying from their severe anemia. And I think the key in caring for these patients is to intervene before they get to that level. That is, if they got a bleeder, then go take care of it. And, you know, if it requires a surgical intervention, do it sooner than later. So this is not a new magical tool that I'm describing for you. But once again, it's about the clinical judgment necessary to intervene before these patients get so low that they're at great risk of dying from anemia. So there are no magic bullets for these cases. Stop the bleeding. You know, then we wind up doing all the sort of basic good care that we provide. You know, you give them a little oxygen. Maybe it helps. You're going to give these people iron. You're going to give these people erythropoietin. Um, but the most important thing to do is to stop the bleeding when you can at a range where they're highly likely to recover before they get to a range where they may never have a chance to recover. And for the listener, I explained that also this last scenario and actually all of these demonstrate the overlap between the approach to bleeding, the approach to potentially thrombosis. These people also have atrial fibrillation and need to be on an anticoagulant, the approach to how you pick what you're going to transfuse, et cetera. So it's kind of the, the breadth of hospital consultative medicine, if you will. And that's, that's what we wanted to cover with this review series. And that's all the questions I have for the group. Thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. I want to thank the presenters who've discussed these topics that are relevant to consultative hematology. I think that this is an area that is very important to all of us who see hospitalized patients, knowing how to manage, knowing how to evaluate quickly and decide on the best treatment approach to pursue. Um, this is always going to be something that comes up. It's going to be bread and butter for hematology, but as treatments evolve and new tests come out and as guidelines change, there will be new advances in this area ongoing throughout our careers. So again, I'd like to thank the presenters. I'd like to thank the listeners, and I hope that this is extremely helpful for you. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the Blood Podcast. To read these articles, visit bloodjournal.org. This episode is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.